Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Sports and Torts. It's been a fun fall so far, and the good times train keeps on rolling with our guest today. Like Reiki in the house. I said it right, didn't I? Reiki? I, I am so happy. That There's a you lot did. of discussion for now. I said, I got to get my boy's name right. I know it's Reiki. My, my, my family can't agree, so I don't, I don't give anybody crap for it. All right, good. Well, it's Mike Reiki. That's what we're going with. Uh, Mike is a plaintiff's lawyer here in Atlanta, has his own firm, uh, specializes in a high end injury case to be an emphasis on crime victims representation. Right? Yeah, we do a lot of that. Um, Mike is a wizard in the courtroom, a wizard on social media, a great guy. So, no shortage of great stuff for us to talk about here today. My man, Always good to see you. Thanks for coming today. I can continue on. Gracias. I've been serving not as a wizard, as the tooth fairy lately. Everybody in my house is losing teeth. So what's the going rate for the tooth these days? I mean, fl- inflation's a bitch. Where, where, where are we at? This is a true story. So we're scrambling around the other night for uh, for money. Don't have any money. I have a 20 and a tooth is not worth 20. I'm not giving up 20. Yeah. Not going to do it. I found five euros. So whatever the conversion rate to five euros is, and then, then Charlie, who's 10, goes you know, what is this? And I'm like, oh, you got to wait to spend that. But by the time it's like a Disney bond when you got when you were a kid, right? It's it's going to be worth a lot. That's all I'm going to say is you're almost giving them something that in 10 years they actually get to Europe or maybe more, well, I don't know. They actually, they're, they're going to put that in their pockets and they're going to put it in their, in their stuff. I, mean, I like that. No, they're not. They're going to keep it in their pocket and never spend it. That's what they're going to do. Uh, we used to do these things with um, the fairy dust. Fairy, have y'all seen oh, that? You went all above dude, and beyond. Dude, and my daughter, God bless her, she believed it for the longest time. Purple fairy, green fairy, orange fairy, whatever it is. Uh, we're out of the tooth the, the, yeah. the tooth fairy business, but uh, wizard tooth fairy, you got it all. Well, braces are more expensive than tooth fairy. So I guess, you know, we're in the braces game now. So I tooth fairy is, is a discount to the braces. Yeah, my dad's a dentist, so he'll hear all this tooth talk. I'm like, this is great. This is the most tooth talking about the podcast. But uh, it's fun to do these podcasts because I get to see people like you in person. Like, well, you know, change together. I see you on videos, webinars, but uh, I like old fashioned, like get together, see people do it. So. You're on the one email chain I actually read on like a daily basis. It's the best email chain, yo. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, I learn something every day. I don't participate. I wish I could like give more, but uh, God, it's it's good stuff. Man. Uh, the thing I left out of your bio, but I want to make sure I bring up, is that is it true that if you type in your name into Google, you, this is the internet fulfillment? <laughs> I'm told, yes. I, I have nothing to do with that. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if that makes me cool with uh, with 17-year-olds or something, but that is not my goal, but it's there. It is there. How does one get that designation? You know, like a certificate? You get a bumper sticker? <laughs> I have no idea. I've, I was thinking I'd get some sort of plaque from Google. You know, I don't, nothing. I got nothing. I didn't even get a discount on Google ad. Not a single discount. Hey, Google execs, you're listening. Give my boy the designation. At least throw him a phone with an ad or two. That's good for that, man. All right, well, for those people listening that don't know you, Introduction, VR, where you're from, family, all that, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I'm Mike Rafey, uh, born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, I went to college in South Carolina, then went to Georgia for law school, and I've been in Atlanta since 2011. Uh, lived in Inman Park before it was cool. Uh, lived there before Beltline, before all that stuff. That's my Atlanta claim to fame. Uh, I am married to a teacher who teaches at Morningside Elementary. I have two kids who go there, and I have one kid on the way. We were talking about that before we were so reporting. Saw a video that you posted about the the name of the baby, and you catch a little heat for that. A little bit, because I, I that was the mis- the mistake I made. There was I made that video, and I said, "Hey, look at this video. Isn't this funny?" Like probably about two months ago, and she said, "Don't post that. I don't want social media to help us pick a name." And I was like, "Okay." And then we picked a name. So like we have a name, which I'm still fifty fifty. There's two names, and uh, from in in my world, there's two names, but there's only one name in my house. So then I felt comfortable enough to post it. And then I was messing with her today and wrote, uh, you know, I don't know, we've been getting some really good comments on, on social media about what the name should be. And she goes, I'm going to murder you. So if I'm murdered now, we know who to go to. Now, will you release the name and pull the baby born? We've told my parents and her parents, we've told the two kids. Um, but I don't know. Cause that's the thing, man. Some people are like, way against that some people want to start referring to the baby as the name we were always ones and we didn't we didn't really decide the names until like when the baby was born 
But there's a whole discussion about that. So that was, I wanted to wait. I wanted to, I was kidding around saying, I wanted to look, the two jokes I've had is I want to look at the baby and then name him. We know it's a him. Um, or, and I wanted to buy scrubs and wear scrubs during the delivery. Neither of those, neither of those got any sort of leverage no. or, or traction at all. Um, but I, it's her third, my first. So the, the two other ones are my stepkids. So for my first, I thought I had a little more like, you know, a little more leeway. Like, no, absolutely not. No, in terms of pick my advice, what you want. But in terms of picking battles, like that's probably not, not you want to pick. <laughs> save, save that juice for something else down the line. Uh, all right. So you're from New Jersey originally, right? Yeah. No, I, in the trust you're here, I found myself uh, Jersey Shore. I came on a TV the other day and I found myself on it. Wait a second. You got to see it. It's still about it. It's in my mind though. Jer Jersey Shore started. I'm. I'm. I have my phone out, and I was going to look it up, but I. To be honest, I am so confident in this. Yeah. Jersey Shore started the summer I was going to college. Okay. So I go from, and I grew up on the Jersey Shore. None of those people actually from anywhere near where where I grew up. But I grew up like a quarter mile from the beach. Worked in a boatyard, uh, and that was my job like all through high school. So I go to a conservative, formerly religiously affiliated college, uh, Furman. So I go there and I show up and I'm like one of 30 people in the school that are from New Jersey and Jersey Shore has just come out. Like I walk into school, go to a party, whatever you tell somebody, oh, you know, basic freshman conversation. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm from New Jersey. I was like, Jersey Shore. People go to. Every single time. Oh man, that's so time. good. How realistic is that show to the people that are in the area? To the people who actually live there full time, not at all, but to the people that invade, and I use that word intentionally, invade the Jersey Shore in the summers, that is really realistic. Like we call them Bennies. They're from Brooklyn, Elizabeth, Newark, and New York. So, nice. <laughs> you know, that joke was always don't give Bennies the right direction. I like it. But they, people from the areas I just said come to New Jersey, they, they rent the shares, they rent shares of a house and they all just you know, 30 people in a house for a weekend. They go to DJs. That's a real bar. They go to Belmar. That's a real place. And it's a, it's a crap show because I told you I wouldn't curse on here. It's a crap show. Uh, it's it's like the heyday of Buckhead on uh, the weekend of SEC championship game when it's just chaos. But that's Thursday through Sunday during the summer. There. Right. You add it all together. One big Brunswick stew of chaos. Well, I'm glad you made your way down south. Uh, UGA, still, I grew up in Atlanta. Um, so for us, it was always kind of thing. But how did you find out about UGA, Apple, and what drew you? There's a pretty well-beaten path between Furman to UGA, but I, my story is I went there on the day your seat deposit is due, you know, the, uh, okay. you know, you, yeah. the day you had to pay sure. money. So I took the LSAT twice and got two remarkably different scores, which was weird. The first time I took it, I was already teaching for Kaplan how to take the LSAT. My, my story to this day, and maybe till I die is I misbubbled. That's the only way I can figure out what happened. So I take it a second time and my scores are so different. I had to write an addendum on the application to everyone saying, why my scores were different. And I didn't have a reason. I was like, I don't know. It was what it was. A bubble thing. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. So I applied everywhere in the, in, up, up and down the East coast. Cause I had no idea where it would let me in. I go to Georgia. I go to Athens on the day the seat deposits due. I have a blank check in my car and I meet up with a friend who uh, I went to Furman with and he walks me around the school and then he goes, you want to go get a drink or something? And I'm like, sure. You know, my car is over here in North deck. Where do I need to drive to? And he laughs and goes, no, no, come with me. Um, I think I was about three drinks deep by in, the, in an hour or so later. And I ran back by five o'clock to go give my seat deposit and give my money. That's, that's, my, that's, that's the real story. That's great. That's an awesome story. And what a great decision you made, right? Like I'm very biased. People are sick of hearing me talk about Georgia, but living in Atlanta, being a warrior here, like what's better law school is there to talk this? So I'm on the Georgia uh, Alumni Council. So I'm going to be the spokesperson here unofficially, or maybe sort of officially. Georgia's right now is the best return on investment in the country. And looking back to work in Atlanta, it is the best place to go because what other school feeds into Atlanta as much as Georgia does? Um, Emory, those folks are going to New York, Chicago, Florida, right? Um, everybody's going to DC from Emory. There's a bunch of people. Georgia State has a really good school and they're they're coming in. Mercer, sure. But like where else is coming into one of the largest legal markets in, in the country? Georgia's the answer. Oh, by the way, you're in Athens for three years. Yeah, not a bad thing. When <laughs> right? I was when I did defense work, I was on the the hiring committee. And like we would have I say kids, we would have students apply for from Duke from Vanderbilt, from wherever. Schools that are, you know, marginally, I'll say marginally, better in terms of whatever that means, 
to law schools uh, to compared to Georgia, and they would have more of an uphill fight than somebody that's in Athens and does well and comes and interviews well. Because yep, yep. the question is always, why didn't you go to Georgia? Mm-hmm. So cosine all of that. Uh, you mentioned DC. You mentioned New York. So I will take that as a segue to your former career. Working the news, living in New York, living in DC. That's super unique. I don't think I know anybody. Well, that's not true. My my cousin, uh, my wife's cousin, did some broadcasting in Mississippi for a while. Uh, but I don't know people did like work for the news. Like that's pretty cool. Yes. It's good and bad. Good and bad. You make nothing. You make no money. Um, I worked when I was at Furman, I I interned with uh, Lindsey Graham, who I get afraid to say some of this because I'm we're about to go down the Lindsey Graham Fox News r- route of my life, which whatever your politics are, that when someone says I worked for Lindsey Graham and then I worked at Fox News, they're like, oh, I know who this guy is. Um, it was a different world in 2007 or eight, whenever that was. So uh, I worked for Lindsey Graham and he helped his folks help me get a job at Fox News. And I was initially the greeter. So if you were coming on Fox uh, from seven in the morning until six at night, I was the person that talked to you before you went in. Like, when, you, like you were guessing yeah, the show is. Whoever it was. So I, I you know, I give them a pre-interview. Um, and then I became an associate producer where I wrote, wrote scripts and wrote segments. Like I'd be able to call my mom and be like, hey, I can tell you what Shepard Smith's about to say right now. Cause I wrote that. Um, and it was great. I was there for some really cool stuff. I was there when Saddam Hussein was executed. Uh, at the time I was there, Fox had lost a camera person. Um, or I say lost Fox had a camera person and a reporter who was abducted by, um, one of the groups that were in Afghanistan at the time. And I was in the newsroom when they came back, which was awesome. So like, there's some, uh, really cool stuff that I was there for, but the problem with, with working at a station like that is where do you go? You're not going on there and maybe you can rise up to be a producer. Sure. So the solution, the plan a lot of times is go to a local news network, um, and you're on two-year contracts there, and your goal is to go to a bigger network and a bigger network and a bigger network and so on. So you're moving every two years, which wasn't the best. Probably go to pretty small markets, go to get your foot in the door somewhere. So. My options were Steubenville, Ohio, El Paso, Texas. There might have been a third. There you go. If you can pick Steubenville, Ohio on a map, I'll- Never heard, never, never heard of it. Right. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Ohio anyway. No, I've been from Ohio for so <laughs> I can't imagine that'd be a good place to be. But uh, was that your kind of initial thought, though, getting on air somehow and then just realizing this path is- I just didn't want to do it. I, I think I could, but I didn't want to do it. I, so I went and worked. I did like a cheat step. I worked for Cox Broadcasting, who owns WSB and the AJC, the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Um, I worked for there at the time. They had 16 stations that were, and they had a DC news bureau. So like literally I do an article or do a, a, a news piece um, for a Charlotte station. Five minutes later, I do one for San Francisco. 10 minutes later, I do one for Orlando. Um, and the only place I've ever been recognized was Disney World in Orlando. Um, but viewers thought I was, and I guess I was their DC correspondent for their local news. That doesn't exist anymore. Cox closed all that down for cost cutting measures and all that. So then I'm like, do I want to go to Steubenville, Ohio, or do I want to go to Athens, Georgia? Athens, Georgia for the world. It's always the answer. So here, here's the, uh, here's the cheesy question I was, I'm, I've had to ask you. So doing that work you did and, and bringing stories to movies, now you're Using that, I guess, when you still the courtroom, did you reply? So, like, is there a correlation? Yeah, it sounds like BS because the answer I'm going to give you is like, yes, it's really great, but and and it sounds like it's <laughs> My BS, right? Is leading for that, so come on. Yeah, but your your question is real because you know what news does is a half of our battle. Our battle is telling a story, right, and then saying what should happen because of the story. That's the that's where the lawyers, good lawyers, make our money by the here's what you should do. Being on uh, on any sort of news broadcast, you have 30, 60, 90, maybe 120 seconds, maybe, to tell a story. So you tell a whole story in that time, and that is half our job now. You know, I, I, the, I didn't have like a epiphany type moment where I was like, you know, you read all those bios, by the way, for, for plaintiff's lawyers like us, and you, there's always an epiphany in the bio. Do you have one? Do you have an epiphany in your bio? Well, if people ask me, it's watching the practice in, in, in uh, you know, college, it wouldn't be Bobby Donald. But do you have the line in your bio that's Josh decided to rededicate himself to helping injured people, and now that has been his focus? So something along those lines. Yeah. You have to, right? I mean, you know, you have to. But I, I know exactly what you're looking. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't have the lawyer epiphany, but I felt unfulfilled because I remember um, I was there. I was at Cox when the Virginia Tech shooting happened. Um, when the kid, well, that's one of the first ish. Uh, mass shooting. So I was in Centerville, Virginia, outside the, the guy's house, the student's house. Um, and 
literally all this news stories, all the news anchors and, and reporters are doing the story at the same time. Like we're all standing next to each other. You might see it in movies oh, yeah. where we're like yeah. three feet apart. Like that's real. So do a stand up and it's the 11 o'clock news. So we do the stand up and then we all pack up and just kind of shrug and go home. And I was like, this, this sucks. Like, this is it. Like there's nothing, there's no, like, do we do something? Cause the follow-up story is never important. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. The follow-up story or the resolution, you never hear that in the news. You hear this happened and that's the end of it. it. And yeah. I guess, I guess your producers, your executive look, you see rating your viewerships and they got some benchmark and metrics. Other than that, you're like, you kind of over The truth of, of local news is there's a website called, I think it's, it used to be called pitcher reporter or helperreporter.com. Like reporters are just struggling every day, trying to find stories. Like every day, interesting stories is really tough. How many times can you do fire traffic, public corruption, uh, and gas prices. Totally. And then these correspondents love when you bring a story to them. Like if it's something that they think is interesting or you know, even like in our business, like you get a verdict, you get a good settlement, we can get a story. Like you call it up, hell yeah, we'll run it because we're looking for things to do. I want to pick out one thing that you said that was really important about learning how to take a story and make it 30 seconds, 90 seconds, time in context. That's all the time you can do. Yeah. I struggle with that, man. I have worked so hard over the last 15, 20 years to shrink, shrink, shrink. You say, I don't know, maybe I'm in love with everything I have to say or want to write, but brevity is so important. I think a lot of it is we sometimes in cases spend years getting information, right? You fight for months, years to get a piece of information that you think is going to be important. And then you get it. And then you're like, this wasn't as important as I thought. And then you feel almost there's this like natural urge to, to say something about it or use the, the information because you don't want that time to be wasted. Um, everybody in their cases has a theme, right? Everybody in the world. Our theme is, you know, distrust. It's, it's uh, loyalty. It's profits over people. It's whatever. Yeah. The Donald Trump, uh, the prosecutors in the New York fraud trial this week said, this is a house of cards, you know, can at least be a little more creative. But I, I like the idea of a win statement, which is one statement, one sentence along that if you can get the jury to believe and agree with you, then you should win. And it doesn't have to be like catchy or flashy. It can literally just be, um, you know, stupid example. If, uh, if your client goes through a, gr a green light, but the defendant says it was a red light and a crash happens, my win statement in that case is probably something like my client's light was green. And if I can prove that sentence and get everyone to agree with that, I should win the case every time. That's what I try to focus on is the one sentence. Do you go back to that throughout the trial and who you kind of hammer, hammer, hammer? Yeah, I'm like a broken record. Yeah. And then doing that in the sense, we've got the whole hand about which trial you had, that makes two days, which a lot of these car wreck cases you can be in two days. And it kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, we work on these cases for years and then the 16 hours. Yep. Less. And you believe all the other stuff we're trying to present it because the juries don't want to hear more. Yeah, you Most take, of the time. You, you know? take a, you take a four hour deposition, um, you know, legal interview under oath of a witness and you may end up finding out five questions and five answers that matter. And you've, you haven't wasted your other time. You've eliminated a lot of routes you don't need to go down, but it's really, it takes a lot of discipline, I guess, is the word, to only bring up those five things. Have you gotten better over the years? I check on it. They got better years of being able to take a shorter deposition, knowing, you know, hey, this is the stuff that really is going to matter. I still want to be suspicious to see what I get, but are you able to convince it? No, because I, I've, I think I've gotten better at that. Um, trying to say, I don't need to take a three-hour deposition just to take the I have, um, I've become more efficient and effective in depositions. I don't know how that relates to time. I'll tell you what I have stopped doing in car crash cases. We don't send interrogatories. Interesting. Why is that? What do you ever get from? I, I don't want to give the lawyer and well, I guess it's two things. I don't want to make the lawyer, especially overworked lawyers or lawyers who don't care, um, or lawyers who aren't going to pick up a pen unless you force them. I don't want to make them go find out about the case. So I don't ask them any questions until the, until I ask their client the deposition uh, questions in the deposition. And what that does is it takes the lawyer out of the game. And then I can ask the clients directly, the defendant directly for answers. I don't know how many depositions do you have where I had one this morning where the defense lawyer, I was pulling my hair out and actually said like, you know, all this stuff already. It's in the interrogatories. Why ask the questions in, 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 in an interrogatory and then ask again at the deposition? I've just cut out the interrogatories because I don't want to even read them. I don't want to send them. No, that's a good point. Now, I'm assuming you're still sending RPDs. Yeah, still want the documents. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. As you, as you kind of explain that, I'm thinking myself, 
God's right. I mean, that- or, or we'll send like five, like the things we actually care about. You know, uh, maybe maybe we think the defendant was working. Question: Were you working? Because I want to know that up front. Or if you were working, do you agree that you know your employer? Does your employer agree that you were in the course and scope of your duty? But I'm not going to ask. What time did you wake up? Did you have any medication? Were you drinking? What'd you do? Where are you going? I'll find all that out in the deposition and I get it directly from the the defendant and I don't have to go through objections and nonsense and all that. Request for extension and all the stuff to get to that thing to have. Now, I, I, I've also heard you talk about the concept of following lawsuits probing too. Yeah. And, and, and I agree 100%. Got my email. <laughs> I was going to bring that up as well. Uh, I felt very, very honored that I got the insider's edition email that came out yesterday. I'm like, see, I'm getting this insider information. Uh, but I figured out that before. I mean, it, and it, and it's something that we do too, because you just got to get to it, man. Um, if you're a client, I mean, imagine, well, so I get a lot of cases. I'll go at it from this way. I get a lot of cases from other lawyers and at the risk of throwing them under the bus to some degree, because if they did a spectacular job, some of them. If some of them did a spectacular job or were organized or wanted to do the job, I wouldn't have a job. They wouldn't send me any cases. So with that in mind, I I take on a lot of cases that have already gone through treatment and a failed settlement negotiation. And the client's sitting there saying, it's been a year and a half since my crash. Like, What has actually happened? And I have to tote this line between saying, some things have happened. Here's what they are. But on the other hand, I'm I'm truly thinking in the back of my mind, yet nothing, like virtually nothing a year and a half in the uh, a year and a half later after your crash, we should be waiting for our reservation on the judge's calendar for a trial. Right. And to frame this for the non-lawyers out there, the traditional way of going about it, you know, get your case, get client treatment, wait until the client is finished to start sitting settlement demands, wait for the insurance company to respond. As you said, 18 months can go by. The insurance company is getting crap responses anyway. You end up filing it when you come back to them. I mean, nine and a, a half. A lot. <laughs> anyway, so why not just go straight there? I mean, me and Andy were talking today, and your email did prompt us out of this conversation. Um, where without maybe even knowing it, unless the case is one of these clear policy moments where there's just no way a rational person you can say isn't a Belston you know, by it. It needs to just be filed. It just needs to be bothered. That's what I think. And and with respect to adjusters, I don't think adjusters at insurance companies are the decision makers like they used to be. Um, they need a pat on the back from a mediator. Defense lawyers now are not uh, given authority or given permission from the insurance companies to settle cases. Like when I worked, I worked at a, a, a law firm where um, one of the lawyers was much, much older. I mean, he was on his, he was pretty close to retiring on his way out. And the idea of not picking up the phone and being able just to settle a case on the phone, lawyer to lawyer to him was maddening because that's the way it always was. Now I've had adjusters be like, yeah, we should settle this case. The defense lawyer says, yeah, we should settle this case, but they need a mediator. They need somebody else to say, it's okay. You can do it. You know, it, do it, pay them the money and you're not going to get there until you file the lawsuit. Now, you mentioned the lawyer you work for. Now, you're a big firm guy at the law school, right? Trotton Sanders. Yeah. Uh, I had many people here that, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it doesn't make people so think that kind of thing. But um, when you were there, was it always something that you knew was going to be not a full time, like career full thing? I have my small firm, one of the things you were. No, I didn't. So I, there's no lawyers in my family. Um, didn't know what being a lawyer was like. Um, I graduated law school in 2011. So my first year of law school, the economy comes crashing down that Christmas. And, you know, the the guys and, and girls who are graduating that year, they lost their potential jobs. Um, the, the year after me was pretty bad. My year was kind of the first year that we had the chance at decent jobs. You know, Troutman's summer class went from like 40 people two years before I was there to like, I think we had 11. So, I mean, huge contraction. So I was there and just trying to figure out what was what. And I ended up doing defense work for Georgia Power. And I was like, I think I can do this. I'm also objectively a terrible, terrible employee. So I would not be able, like I would I would not have survived anywhere for an extended period of time as an employee. Give us an example of that. Why? What you like follow directions, don't listen, or do your own thing, all of the above. So at Troutman, when I was there, the, the last full year, the last like calendar, associate calendar year I was there, I billed the most amount of hours in the Atlanta office. And then I had somebody who said to me, hey, Mike, I need you to start getting to work earlier. And I was like, are you kidding me? 
Like I'm, I'm billing because that's all that matters in a defense room, right? Is what your billable time is. I'm billing more time than anybody else. And you want me here an hour and a half earlier because you want me here and every right, a partner has every right to do that. And I have every right to roll my eyes and say, no. So I stopped working for him and went to somebody else. And you know, I had a great experience there. I, I was not combative or anything like that. And, um, I really, really miss the people I worked with. I still hang out with a lot of them, but, um, it, a, a big firm like that, there's a lot of challenges in, um, being independent you know, and doing the things you want to do. And you're constantly in this, this is the, this is the way we've always done it mode. And that's, that will make me pull my hair out that this is the way we've always done it. In fact, when we hire a new employee, every new employee we hire, there's like this Dilbert cartoon that has Dilbert pulling out his hair and screaming about, you know, just because this is the way we've always done it, that doesn't mean how we should do it. And at a large, I mean, at the time they had, I don't know, a thousand lawyers, something like that. You're not going to change anything. I mean, they have their ways and it works for them. I didn't want to do that. So you went and your your own firm, what, like six, seven years now you've had it? This is our eighth. Eighth year. Yeah. So I'm, try, I'm not trying to cut you short a no, year or two. No. I'm sitting here doing math in my head. Uh, and I also got the email about the happy odds of PDU partners. Yeah. Right? So congratulations yeah. to that. That's awesome. What's the firm set up? Are you able to take all these things that you were saying why you would be a good employee and make your firm hop as the way you liked it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I'll say first uh, about the idea of getting partners. If you would have asked me a year ago and every other year before that, will you ever get partners? I would have said, absolutely not. There's no way in hell um, because I've seen a good partnership work in a law firm. And I've also seen a partnership that wasn't great. And I don't know. It's kind of like a, it, it's a marriage without sex, like right? It's a marriage only about money. And that's even tougher if you don't have the sex. Right. So I think it's really, it, it's a really challenging situation, but I think it says a lot about the two guys that, that are joining me in a partnership about how important, how awesome they are. Our setup, um, has always been that it was my law firm. And then, you know, there were, uh, there were lawyers and, and support staff right now. It's three partners. We have another lawyer. So we have four total lawyers. We have a support staff of seven. Um, and we all work mainly out of the Atlanta office. We have other locations that people do man from time to time, but the whole idea of, you know, we don't have to do it the way it's always been done is that I think the most valuable employee is a brand new one because you start teaching them, here's how we do stuff. And if you empower them, and I mean that as a serious word, if you give them permission um, and courage to say to their brand new employer, this crap doesn't make sense. And they do, they usually have a great reason. So what we're trying to do is always do things in the way that make the most sense. That doesn't necessarily mean the most efficient way. We have redundant processes, for example, but they're just so important that we need to double or triple check something, statute of limitation being one of them. You know, we could have a very efficient statute of limitation, one, one calendar list. That's not going to cut it for our office. So it's balancing those two things. Yeah, especially when you try to get the size, adding multiple lawyers, support staff, if you can't do it on the same spreadsheet. Um, you mentioned, you know, kind of setting up the way you want. Does that include not having FaceTime necessarily, being able to work from home, work remote, not needing to punch the clock? How do you how do you do that? Like you're you're rolling all. Yeah. So when I first opened, it was just me. I mean, I'm alone for at that point eight months. I get a part time paralegal, um, and then year two hire one lawyer. At that time, though, I could do whatever I wanted. I had complete freedom because I wasn't answering to anyone. I got to a place when we were at like seven to eight something like that, people right around there where I hated it. I absolutely hated going to work because I answered to everybody I worked and I had way less freedom. I had way less independence. I mean, if you have great employees, they, let's say they solve 90% of their own problems, which is awesome, right? 90%, they've just got it covered and 10%, they need some help with something. Well, if you have 10 employees and they're all solving 90% of their problems, that means there's a hundred percent of problems that are left for one person. So the hardest, the hardest sides of the law firm I'm convinced is like seven to where I am right now, because one person can't do it all. But at the same time, you're not big enough to like, be like Best Buy where, Hey, welcome to computers. I'm the computer manager. Welcome to refrigerators. I'm the refrigerator guy. So we're still kind of in that, but part of it with taking on partners is, was to, to assign different roles. And now because they got it, uh, you'll see me where I want to be. I'm still doing the work, but I'm going to go where I want to go because um, I guess I will not, I don't mean this to be as strong as it's going to come out, but I will not continue to answer to my business. I'm going to do my business where I want to do it. And I have a lot of advantages and a lot of 
things that have gone right with our business that have enabled me to do that. But you know, now that we have time, now that I have the ability to do it, I'm going to take every advantage of it. It's an advantage of the kind of job that you have, right? I mean, you can do it real time anywhere. Unless you, you can depositions now. I mean, even remote. Most of mine, not most, but a good percentage are still done via Zoom. Uh, court happens rarer and rarer. So yeah, and even that, they have Zoom court hearing. So you can really do it. I'll tell you something that I haven't told many people. Uh, oh, I know the people now, man. I, I, million. I hope this is millions. Um, in 2000 and end of 18, early 19, we had an employee who was awesome. Her name is Savannah. She lives down in Florida. She moved to Florida while she was working for me. And she says, she was great paralegal. And she says, Hey, I don't think I can keep working here. I'm moving to Florida. I'm going to get engaged. I'm my husband soon to be just got a great job. And I'm like, that is awesome. But no, no, seriously, you can keep working. So we bought her or, or helped her pay for a second bedroom apartment. That was her office, mailed her a computer, monitor, everything. So she did that for like eight months. And then I started to intentionally kind of pull away from being in the office. And in, I'm trying to think of the month, in, I left on Cinco de Mayo. So in May, June into July of 2019, I lived in Spain and I didn't tell anyone. And the person that laughs the most about this is Eric Rogers, because Eric during that time is like, hey man, you want to go get a beer? You want to go get lunch? And I'm like, I'm on vacation. I'll be back. Two weeks would go by through. He'd be like, hey, you back? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm still on vacation. I did that to him for like 90 days or something and then came back. But there was not a single negative impact on my business at that point. Not It had no effect. And that was before COVID. That was before we were so used to it. So hand in the air, I'd not heard that story before. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, just tooling around. I didn't want to tell everybody. Tool, tool. I, I was afraid. Um, my fear was that somebody would say, I'm not going to call up Mike because he's not in the office. He's not working, but I was. So what, what happened? How has that empowered you to know that you can do things a certain way, right? I mean, that's the ultimate time. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a time I think with successful law firms or businesses, whoever that you, your most powerful, powerful thing is saying no, right? I, I'll be completely honest. I took a client on like in the first two weeks of being opening, it might've been actually my first like real client. If that lady called me today, I would run so far away. And I knew it at the time. I was her like sixth lawyer. Like I knew, but I needed to, I had to. And I haven't been in that world for a while, which is, which is lucky and thankful. Um, but you know, you get, you get some advantages when you have the ability to say no, and you don't feel it in the pocketbook and you're not sitting up at night saying, am I going to keep my power bill on? I still set up at night going, you know, where I'm, I'm usually two to three years out. Where's my money coming in two to three years? Cause I have the inventory of the cases right now. I settle a big case. I celebrate. Then I wake up the next morning and go, how am I going to replace that case? Yeah, it's, how am I going to do it? Yeah. Next year you can look, I agree. Totally, totally agree with you on that. Uh, now the cases you're working on, I, I don't mean to, to kind of pitch and hold you in the one type of case that you do a great job on all types of cases, but the shooting cases, the crime victim stuff, I don't want to try to focus on that, but you, you said you did a job. Um, so be able to listen, give like a, a fat pattern of that point of the case where you get involved, kind of how that case is look. Yeah. So I'll give you a, a case we had once that, that I think resonates with a lot of people. Um, baseball season is in playoff time right now as we're recording this. So I could see a situation where um, your friend says to you, hey man, the Braves are playing wherever they're going to play, probably in Philly. It's a, it's an away game in Philly. It's on a Friday or Saturday night. Do you want to come over? We're having a bunch of people at my apartment. Come on down. Let's have a good time. And you go, yeah, I'll be over Friday night. As you get there on Friday night, as far as you know, everything's good. It's a nice apartment. Looks fine. Um, friend lives there. It's got to be nice, right? He's a good guy. And then when you're walking in, you get robbed and shot. Um, and, and all that's part of an aggravated assault and a robbery. And you later then say, you start hearing through the grapevine, you, you Google, you, you whatever, and you find, hey, there's been a bunch of, of shootings there. There's been a bunch of crimes. Excuse me. There's been a bunch of carjackings, whatever it is. Your friend says, you know, my neighbor came by and said some guy came by and held a gun on him three weeks early. I had no idea. And you're sitting there and you say, well, whose fault is that? And the answer is on the criminal side, it's the person who shot you without a doubt. On the civil side though, the answer could be that the apartment complex in that scenario didn't do anything when they learned that there was a threat, that there was a problem. And apartment complexes are not you know, secret service. They don't have to protect you like they protect the Pope, but they do need to take reasonable steps, whatever the heck that means in the law, reasonable steps to guard against dangers they know about. And what that means in common sense is, 
If you think there might be a crime on your property because there's been some crime in the past, you should probably do something and stop that. It's the trampoline example in your backyard. You know, if you have a trampoline with kids and you know all the neighbors are coming, all the neighbor kids come to your house when you're not there and jump on your trampoline and you don't do anything to keep them off and you just say, yeah, it's not a big deal. And then one hurts themselves. You know, is it the kid's fault for going on the trampoline? Maybe. Is it your fault though for not doing anything when you know that somebody was going to get hurt? And, and let's make it worse. Let's say the trampoline has a hole in it and you know that it's not, you know, it's broken and you still kind of just sort of let people do it. That's kind of the idea with these cases. My son just got broken trampoline. So what you're saying is no trampolines. Very, we have a no trampoline rule. Well, it, we are now in a trampoline yes. house, um, but <laughs> I, I will say this. We got a good five, six years of good entertainment out of that thing. Uh, so to go a different direction. Um, so those cases, when you, when you, when you get a call about one, you look at there. Like, what's the analysis? How do you kind of filter it through? You know, what's a good case? What's a bad case? Is this something that a partner complex that we should know about? Because there's tons of like, unlike a call that case, you're not going to get a feature report. You run a red, red light, but there's a lot more to it. How do you avoid yourself from getting involved in these cases that can go on for years where there's really not something more? Yeah. So, um, first thing we do is we assess the client. You know, like. In some of these cases, the clients are doing things they shouldn't be do be doing, and that's why a crime has happened. So you have to be you have to be very particular and say, take off your lawyer hat, put on your like normal dude walking around hat, and say, was my potential client was he doing anything bad? And if the answer to that is no, then you want to make sure that the shooting was in a common area, you know, not inside an apartment. And then you're going to police records. And what makes these cases so incredibly time consuming and challenging, as you know firsthand, is that a car crash is one single thing. It's a car crash and it happened one time. In fact, the law doesn't allow you to even usually talk about other car crashes. That driver who hit your client might have 19 other car crashes. You can't talk about them. So there's no reason to investigate them. The best negligence security cases, that's what we call these, the best negligence security cases that exist have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 prior crimes that are all important because those prior crimes say to a reasonable property owner, management company, whoever, oh, wow, all this bad stuff's going on. We should really do something about that. So you have to investigate so many other things. And that process alone, I mean, that is the beginning process. For us, that process takes somewhere between two to four months, maybe longer if it's Atlanta Police Department because getting records out of them is is. I was going to ask if you have the, the silver bullet way to get records from your police department. Um, we've made friends with a lot of people in records departments. I send a lot of, uh, uh, you mentioned teeth. I sent somebody the other day in a county records department um, a bouquet of flowers because she had a, she had a tooth pulled and I just learned that from talking to her. Um, that is fantastic. But Atlanta Police Department, I think I could like bring, I don't know, stacks of 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 money, bands of money on a golden platter, and no one would possibly send me a police report in a meaningful in a, in a reasonable amount of time. You're just stuck. It's tough. It's tough. And, and you know they're nice about it, I guess, and they tell you they're just you overworked. Know, we're, it's not their fault. We're trying, or the cases are open for, for into perpetuity. Uh, again, unlike a car wreck case where discovery, most of them have been me. You know, how many times have you had to buy like crazy motion to compel the stuff in a one-on-one -on -one case? But these security cases, like there's discovery advice, oh, yeah. right? And everyone, and, and you, and you have made some pretty good headway. <laughs> and I don't know how much detail you want to go into that when I'm talking about the several hundred page federal judge order that came out. But, uh, I mean, you dig into the stuff, you dig into the discovery and that's what wins a lot of these cases. Yeah. So I'll tell you, uh, on that case, I think it was 368 pages. Admittedly, admittedly, I have not read every page. This was a, a order, a ruling by a judge that that held some lawyers and some defendants uh, in trouble, basically, for doing some bad stuff. And I was reading the first, I was at like page 200, and I'm still in the facts. The, the orders start out, you know, with facts and then what the law is, and then they apply the, the law to the facts. I'm reading the facts and I'm getting like PTSD because this is over like a two year span where Reliving we were working on this all the, yeah, yeah. And I skipped that part. So I did not read what I already knew. I still, it still gives me the shakes. But I'll tell you in that case, there's a, another case that's similar for in the same apartment complex that's going on that's handled by different plaintiff's lawyers for a different victim. Um, and in that case, they, they made the decision, the plaintiff's lawyers there made the decision not to go down the road that we went down. Um, they basically said, look, we think we have enough information to win the case. Our time is more valuable from a business perspective, and we're not going to go down that road and 
we'll, we'll, we'll just go with what we have. Live with the facts you have, yeah. And I remember walking around with, with Alex Brown in my office because it was him and I working on the case. And I just remember us walking to lunch, shaking our heads, not really saying much, just kind of saying like, how could you, how could that be your answer? And that is, and that is a lot of people's answers. It's not ours. Um, you know, we, I want to know everything because I, if I don't, and this isn't crap, this isn't BS. If I don't, I really do feel a weight that I don't want to mess up for somebody. And that's, I, I don't want to mess up. Right. These cases involve, I mean, deaths, horrific injuries. They, they have to. They have to, to make them worthwhile. Yeah. Because these, well, these cases, I mean, you're, you're risking spending tens of thousands of dollars, maybe a hundred plus thousand, uh, thousand dollars of your own money as a lawyer. And you're to, to justify that in a business side, to be willing to say, I'm okay spending, we estimate we spent probably about 2000 hours on that case. I mean, that's a full year's worth of work between the two of us. Um, if you're going to spend that time, spend that money, not divert your resources to other things, the opportunity cost, you have to be extremely badly injured. Um, you know, when a client calls me and says, I was shot at wherever, my first re reaction is, I'm so sorry, empathetic, truthful. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? And they go, yeah, I'm okay. You know, one client said to me, it was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It was just a through and through. And I was back to work the next day. And I said, dude, that's awesome. I'm so glad that we're talking, but the fact that we are talking probably means you don't have a case. So uh, let me stop you right there because you and I both have similar practices where it's, it's few cases. And so the cases have to got to be significant. Yeah. So I struggle with how to probably articulate to, to a potential client to call me. I know you're hurt, you just ain't hurt bad enough. Yeah. I, how do you say it? Like, like teach me because every time I'm like, did that come out right? Or am I telling this person like, but they don't want to hear. I, I don't know. I usually say I'm the lawyer of last resort. So I'm the lawyer. I tell people this. I say, hey, if you're calling me, um, I'm the lawyer of last resort for people that are so badly injured, they need a lawyer that can only do that. And there's a lot of other lawyers that do cases across the spectrum uh, on the rainbow. I'm only the color orange. That's all I am. Or maybe I'll say red because Athens, I'm, I'm only the color red. I'm glad you don't need me because if you need me, that means you are so hurt that your life is going to be permanently affected by whatever happened to you. And I'm really glad that I'm not taking you on as a client. And then, you know, here's the key, but let me tell you three people who you should call, who will do a great job, treat you really well. And, and truthfully finding three people to do that nowadays, sometimes is difficult, but here are the three people that I recommend to you. Um, call me back if you have any other problems and I'll check in with you. And I always do about a week later and say, Hey, are you set up with somebody? I just want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. And people appreciate that. Yeah. Good to money to be. Um, it's just the conversations always kind of wonky to have, like, I never know how to pop sure. but for, for more for lawyers, but I've said this to clients and I say, you know, there are law firms that are like Walmart where they have a department for everything. You can buy anything. It's cheap. Um, you can get in, get out. You could do whatever you want there. And for your, I was in a car crash, at least in my world, I was in a car crash and my back and neck hurts, but I don't really need to go to the doctor. To me, I'm not criticizing Walmart here. I'm really not. That is a Walmart case. So go to a Walmart lawyer who's going to, who can handle that because they, Walmart monetizes everything from the subway that's inside the building to, you know, the banana they sell in grocery to the lug nuts they sell in, in auto, like Costco too, right? They're monetizing everything. I don't monetize everything. So when you come to me and you don't have an injury that is that bad, it's because I am not Walmart. I'm your specialized sporting goods store that, I don't know, there's a tennis shop in Morningside. I'm only selling you tennis rackets. Mm -hmm. You thankfully don't need a tennis racket, so go to Walmart and get whatever you need. And yeah. and some Walmarts are great. I don't want. You I'm never gonna go wrong with a Walmart. I'm gonna get an email from Stolen. someone that's titled "Fu" that says Walmart's the lawyers you're just ripping on. And I'm gonna go. No, I'm really not. That's gonna happen. All right. We'll look forward <laughs> to that one coming. Uh, all right. Now to get all these cases, you got to be good at marketing yourself, marketing your firm, make sure people know what it is that you're doing. You are you enjoy marketing, I think, and you're good at it. What is your kind of? We'll start big digital marketing and then kind of work smaller to what you've done this effective. Uh, my number one way to market and the number one way that has always worked for me is giving free advice and value. Um, to give you some credit, I am so glad that your podcast, which I've listened to, no BS, is free and you're not trying to sell somebody some $10,000 mastermind group of come and do this and come to my seminar and spend all this money um, because that's not a win for the consumer, for the lawyer who's looking for advice. So in my first year, I had a lot of free time on my hands, right? You know, I started with three cases. 
So I started one internally working on systems, but in terms of marketing, I started trying to make as much content as I could to reach lawyers and say, Hey, you know, here's what I think. Here's what I think will add value. Um, at that point it was a lot of shooting cases. Not everybody and their mother was doing shooting cases back then. So I, you know, I would write a lot of content, spend a lot of time talking about those. Um, and that's what I've tried to continue to do now with just more channels where I'm trying to constantly give real, meaningful, helpful advice with some entertainment thrown in there. Using social media to your advantage to reach people, right? Yeah, I social media, um, the verdict's out for me. The best, the best marketing that I have are, are two things. Uh, I have a rule that every time I get in my car for more than 20 minutes, and there's not a kid in the car who can't hear what I'm going to talk about. You ever have that where a lawyer calls you and they say, hey, I got this client. He was he was great. He was maimed and shot. And you're like, hey, can can I call you back in 10 minutes? I can't. My, my, my kid doesn't have headphones in or uh, earmuffs. I, I can't talk to you about this. But my rule is assuming that I can, if I get in a car for 20 minutes, I call someone just a lawyer, a friend, whoever. And I just say, Hey, what's up? Catch up. Just to catch up. That is probably the best marketing that I do. And then the second best is for lawyers who send me cases, um, and that I work for them. They're the referring lawyer. I give them continuous updates about what's going on to the point where some of them say, Hey, you got it. I know. Stop telling me about it. I'm like, I'm still going to keep telling you about it. People love that. I get that said to me all the time too. Not saying see your thunder, but I, I think that's important as well. It's like, oh, we should appreciate the updates that you're giving us. We don't always get that. It's so much easier to get a new case from a current person who trusts you rather than starting with someone that you meet brand new, building trust. Because you have to have trust if you're going to, you have to trust me to give me a case because the case has to, for me to take it, like we were talking about Walmart versus specialty store, it has to be a significant case. So you got to trust me. Speaking of meeting new people, um, the idea of going to GTLA functions, cocktail parties, you talked about that before too. See, I got your material, man. Uh, I, I, I'm a social person. Yeah. I like going out, drinking, having fun, but I don't like this. I don't like those events. I... I used to go to them more as a show, social aspect, right? And um, they were fun. And and I think I'm a little younger than you, I think. But I say that because I, I say that just saying that it gave me a little bit more of a time horizon on a Thursday night to go out till midnight or one o'clock probably. Um, uh, you know, your kid's 15, right? You have a daughter's 15. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, you know, I, I married into kids uh, two years ago three, whatever it is, two, a year and a half ago, I married into kids. So I was single and going out Thursday and hanging out and then going wherever that night led was a little easier. But one, I didn't get any business from it. Two, I felt crappy the next day. <laughs> and then three, there were just so many other things professionally or just socially that, I, uh, that I'd rather be doing. And then what happened was the people that were kind of my group kind of phased out. We all phased out at the same time. I remember being 26, 27, standing in a Buckhead bar and all of my friends, we all looked at each other, just shook our head and went, what are we doing here? And we get so old. And we, we all went, I think we went to Waffle House and then we never went out like that again. And it was just like a- uh, It's a natural progression. Yeah. Now, one thing I am going to, another thing I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, I stole from you and need credit for it because I think it's very smart is- when people come up to you, hey, man, what's going on? How you doing? Oh, just real busy. You know, like, oh, just so busy. Hate that guy. Hate that guy. That stinks. Or, 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 or it's, uh, what's the other one? It's like living the dream, living the dream. Another day, another dollar. Another, yeah. Uh, always have an answer for that. Like, always have a case you're working on. Always have a story to tell. Always have something that is engaging to that question. Right? Yeah. And I'll tell you how I got there. That's not some brilliant thought I have. But if somebody says to you, the, the idea, like you said, is someone comes and says, hey, man, what's going on? You're at a happy hour. You run into somebody you know. What are you working on? And and I guess part one is if you're asking that question, ask somebody, hey, are you working on anything interesting? Ask a decent question other than like, what's up? And I fall into that habit because I just say, what's up? But when someone asks you, have a, have a story to tell them. People love stories. But I got that idea in... 2015, I'm reading a book called Networking Like a Pro, which I read maybe once every two years now. It's one of those books you read that you get done with the book and you say, man, I knew all this stuff, but you weren't doing it. You, you, you knew it, but you weren't doing all that stuff. And it's such a basic book um, that I get kind of embarrassed if somebody's going to go look it up and read it because it's you, you do get to the end and you're like, oh man, this this is easy stuff. But that little simple thing 
you know, you tell somebody about your case and you're excited about what you do and you're positive about it, then you're, somebody's going to look up to you and say, hey, you know, look you up and say, hey, let me have a case. It's the same reason we tell employees of ours, hey, look, I know some days at work suck. I know this isn't the most fun day. I know things are stressful sometimes. I know it's challenging. But when you go to Thanksgiving, when you go to your Halloween party with your friends and they say, what do you do? It will help you and help our firm for you to be positive. And instead of saying, my boss is a jerk sometimes and he's, he's he stresses me out and he's demanding and wants all this stuff, say, my boss is really challenging. Don't lie. My boss is really tough sometimes, but the work that him and the other lawyers do, I see it makes a difference. And I like, I like going to work every day. You say that, somebody's going to think about us. Yep. If you say the opposite, somebody's going to say, I'm never calling them. 100% agree. Very, very well said. It's, it's the same idea of, of people who, how many, how many times you heard lawyers go, or a, a kid, a student goes, I want to be a lawyer. And somebody goes, no, you don't. No, that's, yeah. And scoffs at the person. So I do, I, I agree with that. And I, I always make sure that, that first of all, that's not my truthful how I feel. And so I never answer that way. And then same with law school. Like, oh man, law school is such a drag. And so, I had a great like, time. I had a great time. <laughs> and I don't think that's just because it was Georgia. I think guys like me, guys like you, like it's just kind of the, your, your ethos, so to speak. And like, I think it just carries on in all aspects of our work and our life. And it's a happier way to be, right? Yeah. Um, well, you treat law school like a job. Do it from, if anybody out there is listening and thinking about going to law school, make sure you know, as more than I did, I went straight through-ish, make sure you know like what being a lawyer actually means. Right. You know what I mean? Like go work at a law firm for a year. It's worth it. And the the, the my friends in law school who did that for a year or two um, did remarkably, had an easier time in law school because they did treat it like a job. They went nine to five and then their day was over. I'm here studying at, you know, 10 o'clock or I'm studying at, you know, two in the afternoon, but not studying at 10 or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but I, I just wish people, lawyers especially, like if you hate your job, cool, but don't ruin someone else's dream. Yeah. Now back with social media, because you do do the videos. Yeah. There's a handful of us, me included, that try to vacate a, a regular you know, post on these different sites. Um, you do it every day. Is it something that you do batch your recordings and send them out? You have a, how do you call it your topics? How do you measure it? Do you have fun with it? Tell me, I'm just curious how you go about doing it. I sit in a room for somewhere between six to eight hours and I just talk. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I let the pause go on there on purpose, but that's it. So I, we have a camera set up and, um, Depending on the day, somebody comes in, whether they're on my team or whether the folks that I, I outsource just to do camera work, um, and they just start asking me questions. And I, it leads me to talk about random stuff like this. It's literally this, just alone in a room without another person talking back to you. I was going to ask who, who you outsource to, like who's part of your team. You said a camera person. Are yeah. you the one that's editing it? Or are you posting it? Or are you? We edit. I, I, I edit and post. And I mean, part of that is... Um, it's personal. Like some of the things I talk about are really are personal and like me. Um, I've sent out uh, footage to different editors and I do that from time to time. The problem is it loses the me factor. And I don't know if that matters to anyone else. It matters to me because I mean, in the end, it's me that it's my face and it's my words and people associate it like they should with me. So I don't want stories that I, that I say to be changed or I don't want, um, if I use a curse word, I don't want someone to be like, oh, I don't want to use that. No, I'm, it's me. I curse. I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, or if I touch a topic that, you know, especially a topic that might get a lot of views for whatever reason, whether it's about the law or not, I want to be able to own it and say, yeah, I said that. And that was me as opposed to risking someone else kind of taking it a little bit out of context for editing purposes. One of your TikTok videos did catch me in fire, right? Um, in terms of shared and posted and got you all sorts of subscribers or follows every day. Talk about that. Well, I mean, hell, yesterday I have one that's 4 million people at this point. Um, it's funny, the ones that aren't about being a lawyer get the most views, which should tell us how interesting our jobs truly are. Um, you talk about the one with the trial? Yeah. So the crazy part is that did not have a large following. I mean, it, it really, really didn't. Um, on average, a video I put on TikTok has about, uh, let's call it 80,000 views at this point. Back then, uh, I think it was February of this year, I was averaging something like 30,000 views. And you got to think on TikTok, a majority of people, I shouldn't say majority, a, a decent viewer, a decent amount of viewership is under 18. So they're not jurors. 
Also, your viewership is all over the country and all over the world. And you can figure out what the numbers actually are. So I made a video. Um, I'll tell the story. I was sitting at my desk on a Saturday with a trial on Monday, and I'm reading through what's called motions in limine. These are the defendant's motions for what they don't want. They don't think, uh, they don't think the jury should be allowed to hear about. And a lot of it's just basic stuff. I mean, they were very basic stuff for me and you for lawyers, but I hadn't made a video about motions and limiting and that stuff. So like I spent all of seven minutes making a video, um, didn't use the client's name, didn't use the case name, didn't use the judge's name. Uh, I did say where the case was pending in what County. And I explained three or four, I forget what it was, three or four things that jurors are not allowed to talk about, um, allowed to hear about. The ironic part is in the case that I then tried on Monday, the jurors heard about all three or four of those things because things happened during the trial for, for lay people, for non-lawyers, the, the phrase you usually hear in movies and TVs is they open the door, right? Yep. Three or four different doors got open and those jurors heard about all the stuff I said, hey, traditionally, you're not allowed to talk about this stuff. And uh, at the end of the case, the judge decided that uh, she thought a new trial was warranted. Um, what her reasons were, I'm not 100% sure. I think, you know. She thought a new trial was warranted because you made this video. I don't know the, if I agree with that. Well, just the, the yeah. 30,000 foot kind of people that are listening while they're trying to figure out mm. Yeah, she said that uh, she talked about my video and said that she thought that um, that as a result of the video, it made it uh, so that there needed to be a new trial. The facts were, and I, these aren't in dispute, the defense never claimed otherwise. No juror saw the video. Um, there was never an allegation that any jurors saw the video, and that jury um, was fair and reasonable and did the right thing in the case. We eventually settled that case uh, a couple weeks ago, and... Um, and it's highly confidential, so I can't say anything, which should probably tell everybody that uh, sometimes it's very frustrating for us lawyers because we can't tell the whole story because the best thing to do for our client is to agree to a confidential settlement so they get what they need. And the lawyer sometimes takes it on the chin like I did for for some people who I think maybe have misinterpreted what happened or what what went on in that video. Yeah, I mean, they had you on the front page of Daily Report and mistrial this and yeah. uh, well, I, here here's some facts that that nobody really knows. First, it's a hundred thousand dollar insurance policy. So for anybody out there, an insurance policy is pretty much how much money you can get from the insurance company. So I get a one point five million dollar verdict, and four hundred thousand of that is for the defense and the insurance company being so unreasonable in the positions that they took that the jury said to them, "Here's he said to us, here's another four hundred thousand dollars. Go on your merry way." Yeah, and. So the idea that I lost because of the video, that the video caused my client to lose $1.5 million is just not true because there was never $1.5 million to get Right? because there's not a, there's not an insurance policy for that much money. So, you know, whether we were, um, whether we were, well, no matter what happened, I can tell you there's a very rare chance. I'm going to make this more general in a situation like that one, not this specific situation. But a situation like that one where you have a $100,000 insurance policy and a $1.5 million verdict, it is almost impossible to get the full $1.5 million. So I think for a lot of lawyers, and you mentioned the Daily Report, that's a lawyer newspaper, daily newspaper. I think a lot of lawyers who don't do what we do got a sensational headline that made everybody... Um, click to my social media. I mean, hell, everybody watched my videos. I could tell as soon as the article came out and there was like three follow-up articles. There were people that that <laughs> just know what I do that never heard of you. Like, what's this? What's this Mike Rafe thing? What happened? Like, they're sending me the video. I'm like, I, I don't say, man. Yeah. The uh, idea that I would have tried to make a public TikTok video and publish that and try to reach a juror in Gwinnett County I'll tell you, there are companies out there, large defendants that do this, geo-target people for jurors, but it's to me, it's, it's to me, it was a video that truly was trying to help people and help people not in our profession know what the heck a trial is really like and why they can't hear certain things. You know, like, why aren't you allowed to tell the jury that the defendant has insurance? Why aren't you allowed to tell the jury that the, the doctor that they, that the defendant supposedly hired that costs thousands of dollars an hour, not being paid by the actual defendant? I mean, it's sort of common sense, but I think, 
I think we as lawyers would be a lot better off and the civil justice system to get off my, to get on my perch here would be a lot better off and people would understand what we're doing and maybe even respect lawyers that do what we do and stop calling us names and shit, names and stuff. Um, you cursed, you cursed before. Uh, but if we shared what our job really is and what the rules are and why they are, and that's what I was truly trying to do. And I think the law and I think our ethics rules promote that, promote that because an informed citizen is a good citizen. Very well said. Very well said. All right. We're at an hour. Can I get five more minutes? Yeah, come on. All right. Uh, you're also in a Bitcoin. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. got to throw the Bitcoin out there because- uh, I'm going to start sweating. Let me, let me see what the price is. Yeah. Um, I still- How do you know that? I still don't- dude, How do, do you know homework. that? How do you do know my, that? I do my homework, man. Who's the guy that goes around telling all the rappers stuff they don't know? I forget his name, but he does interviews. Bitcoin right now is at $27,469. Is that good? We're okay. Is that I mean, good? It's not. So I still like, don't really understand Bitcoin. All right. I got a good, I, I can actually answer this question because so many people ask me. All right. Uh, my 10 year old had a game on her iPad where she would do math multiplication problems. And when she solved the right problem and got the right answer, she would get coins or tokens or whatever it was, right? Um, that is what Bitcoin is. So with stick with me. I'm th- I'm telling you how to get a Bitcoin, then I'll tell you what Bitcoin is. I'm just going to listen. I don't know the, I don't even know the I'm questions talking. to ask, okay? I mean I don't know if I do either. But you, you the way you get a Bitcoin is by solving um an algorithm of sorts and hitting a number. So each Bitcoin is unlocked when a a computer guesses the right number. Basically does the multiplication on the iPad that the kid's supposed to do, and once you get the right number, you get a little tiny sliver piece of Bitcoin. Um that's that's very basic, basic how it works. What Bitcoin is, is some dudes decided, one dude, but we don't know who his name, what his name is, but a group of people decide, hey, this thing that we get that's that's that we can collect, like baseball cards maybe, it's worth money, it's worth something, and let's trade it. And we can do this across uh, country boundaries, and we don't need to, it, it serves a lot of benefits because we don't need to uh, transfer money and go through fees and stuff like that. And plus every single time that money is transferred, that a Bitcoin is transferred or even a part of a Bitcoin, it's going to be recorded in this big long list of like, imagine, imagine in the Roman days, a scroll hits the floor and rolls all the way out. We're just going to record it. And that way everybody knows what happened and you can make sure that you're actually paid and, uh, and there's, there's a record of it. That's it. That's it. What do you do with it? What do I do with Bitcoin? Well, what does what one, what, what did a person do with Bitcoin? Right now, I do nothing with Bitcoin. Um, I mean, at times you could, I mean, in certain countries, even right now, you can go to McDonald's and use Bitcoin. You can, you could buy a Tesla before Elon went crazy. He always was crazy. Uh, you could, you know, do a bunch of things with it. I think I would compare Bitcoin, and I'm going to get criticized if one of my Bitcoin friends listens to this. The way I would compare Bitcoin to is a bar of gold. It's a bar of gold. So are you going out to McDonald's and using your bar of gold to, to or your savings bond to buy something? No. Uh, Bitcoin is, I think, a way, or it's a thing that holds value because people say it holds value, just like the watch you and I are wearing, the watch Goldner had. That was a nice watch over there. Well, Give him a compliment. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just something that certain people believe holds value. So the watch, the the watch, the gold bar analogy makes the most sense to me. Anything that's ever told me about Bitcoin, uh, that makes sense. And 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 people that own Bitcoin are betting that it is a scarce resource that is going to increase in value, and one day would be ignore you. Yeah, people think? people call it a reserve, a, a money reserve. So that's what some people think Bitcoin will become. It's a money reserve. Where do you go buy your Bitcoin? Get your Bitcoin. You, you can go on any, pretty much anywhere now. The reason, so I'm, I, it's 2019, it's like November, and I got an article. I knew nothing about Bitcoin, just that it existed. And I saw an article that's, I think it was Citigroup um, or Berkshire Hathaway, one of the large investment funds, um, decided they were going to buy Bitcoin. And I was like, whoa, if those guys are going to do it, it might've been mass mutual. It's one of them. But I was like, if, if those guys are going to do it, they know way more than I do. I don't know anything, but if they're going to do it, I'm going to go and try and do that too. So I started buying Bitcoin at that point. I bought a lot of Bitcoin. It was way cheaper than it is now and way cheaper than what it's been. And then I started mining it myself, um, where I have a company that mines Bitcoin, um, by owning 
computers and servers and and basically is playing constantly playing the, the iPad game. I think you're intentionally like effing the game. No. Like like now now I gotta ask you a question about how mine Bitcoin. I mean, that's 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 the game. That's, that's the game. That's that's, the, game that's the iPad. No, that's the iPad game. That is that is mining Bitcoin. I'm just solving I have a, a lot of computers that are guessing numbers and hoping to get the right one and get a piece of Bitcoin. Are you on a physically or actually playing this game? Or you said a company that is so, you know, I own computers and servers, and then I have a company that uh, that helps me put them in places because power, we're going to get way deep. Power consumption is very expensive. It's extremely expensive. So you want to put it, uh, you want to put your your servers, your computers, um, your miners, where it's cheap electric, and you want them to run constantly, and you want a company or somebody that can go and fix them when they break because computers break if they're on 24-7. Yep. Um, but uh, here's the moral of the story. To me, I I invest in Bitcoin because smart people invest in Bitcoin. I am fully comfortable losing every single dollar. Um, but to me, it's worth the risk of, of that because I think, because other smart people think that it will greatly increase. I'm comfortable with that investment. Deal. All right. Fascinating stuff, man. I appreciate you uh, spending that five minutes. First Bitcoin talk on the podcast. Boom. I can give you some other. There's a lot of Bitcoin. There's a lot of people that are are dabbling in Bitcoin that are scared or worried or afraid. And what I, the, my advice is you don't have to learn everything to be involved. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, dude, this was great. I this appreciate was it. great. I, I really appreciate you coming down here and doing this. Um, you could talk for Five more hours, I feel like. We just hit the show with all this stuff, but uh, you got great advice. I, I learned a lot from you, man. Um, those webinars you did during COVID, I watched those. I learned from those. Um, your social media videos, I watched them. I'm going to get you. I'm going to, you're going to, I'm going to ask you for a reference one day when I try to retire and become a law school professor. I'm going to be like, hey, Josh Stein said this stuff. Hire me. Dude, put, put, put me on your reference list <laughs> because I will say, like, I'm kind of picky about who I listen to because I think a lot of people hold crap, especially people who do what we're doing. Because I'm like, that person's a phony. Like, I know what they're actually doing and they could be saying this, but uh, got a lot of respect to you. Good stuff. Well, thanks, you so. too. All right, buddy. Um, enjoyed it very much. So, hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank y'all for listening. You want to give out your website, social media handles, where they can find you? No, if you have a case, call Josh. There you go. All right. There you go. You listen, you, you heard the man. <laughs> on, on, if, uh, if I have a podcast one day, I hope every guest says that, right? I mean, that's that's what I hope. Yeah. Well, you can hey, you can find my gravy internet personality wherever you want. To find me, so. <laughs> uh, all right, guys, listen. If you enjoyed this, tell a friend, uh, like it, comment, subscribe, share the word, follow all those things. And until next time, keep chopping. <laughs>